When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Lift off. We have a lift off. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. As you'll be able to see, if you're watching on uh, YouTube or wherever else we might have put this video, I haven't even got a plan for that yet. It's all very haphazard. Fortunately, we're in some very professional surroundings and hopefully we sound a little bit different as well. Me and George are in the same room. Do you have COVID, George? I I hope not. Great, because last time we did this, we did it in my flat and we all got COVID. Uh, Calvin's not here. Uh, He will be doing a similar episode a little bit later in the year. Um, But as you will know by now, we've taken a couple of weeks off for Christmas, which is a a lovely luxury for the first time maybe ever. For those watching on video, it's not quite Christmas, which is why I'm wearing a Christmas jumper and George isn't. I did not get this memo, but I don't (laughs) think this memo was sent to me. No, in fairness, this is a memo that happened really only in my head. Um, but yeah, we're going to do something a little bit different today. I thought it would be nice for people to get to know uh, us, the the podcasters, and in, in this case, George, um, and I guess his origin story. Um, I mean, that makes it sound like you're a superhero, George. It's X-Men, isn't it? That's the big kind of origins one. Which <laughs> I, I mean, so I have never watched any of the Marvel films or what's the other one? DC Comics. Yeah. It's like I have watched bits and pieces mostly on my like partner's TikTok. They're doing bits and pieces for Star Wars as well. I think now through Disney that they've got right. a lot there. I've not watched any of them, but I've watched Wolverine, and he's quite cool. And he's kind of <laughs> have blades coming out of his hands, so maybe I'll just sit like this the whole way through and like, with a big X. Um, George David Belshaw, born on the 2nd of July in 1992 in Sutton Caulfield, which for people who don't know, and that I was going to say for our overseas listeners, but probably for a lot of our UK listeners as well, it's a large town just outside Birmingham. Um, for those people who don't know Sutton Caulfield, George, what what's it like as a place to grow up in? Oh God, that already feels like a loaded question. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's a nice place to live. Um, I yeah lived in a nice house. Um, I had nice surroundings. We live right by Sutton Park, which. Um, is one of one of the bigger parks in the UK. Actually, funnily enough, my friend when I was younger told me that um, Sutton Park was Europe's largest urban park, and I've been telling people that for a long time. And I only found out like two years ago that that's just completely false. It's just completely <laughs> just made wrong. up. Like, completely literally made nothing. Up. The guy told me I'd be like, I'm fairly sure he would know this. That's the sort of fact he he would have, and not to question. Um, How fact, old were you when you learned this or mislearned it? Disgracefully, like old like with it like old enough to fact check yeah like about 29 30 it, <laughs> it was someone fact checked me actually who knew <laughs> who said hmm, i'm not sure um 
that is and i think richmond park's bigger in england and i'm not right. even sure that's the biggest in in europe there's a very big one in the hague den haag which i've cycled through the other other features of my life like this uh for a long time i thought potato wedges were potato wedgies <laughs> and i also didn't realize that Ottolenghi wasn't actually called otto Lengi. Wow. So I didn't realise he had another first name. Which, yeah. uh, which I think has been lost to uh, history. No one, no one actually yeah. knows. He is just Otto and Lengi. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. He's a Swedish bloke. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he actually sort of part-times as a German tennis player as well. <laughs> um, Otto Lengi. Uh, anyway, <laughs> did you spend a lot of time in Sutton Park? Happy memories? Yeah, it was... Um, yeah, I did. I, I actually... I think I enjoy it when I go back more now. I think that's probably kind of just a common thing of being a kid, isn't it? You don't necessarily look at your surroundings you're like god this is lovely you kind of just muck it around i remember going around on my bike and stuff my brother um that sort of thing yeah probably fighting more often than not but who do you think the most famous because i've done some research george in a, in a shock move who do you think the most famous person from sutton caulfield is I actually have no idea. Well, man. Roger Moore is not from Sutton Coalfield, but Moore. he lived in Sutton Coalfield. So okay. I think internationally he's probably the most famous uh, one because of Bond. I didn't know he'd lived in. All right, do, okay. do you know how um, Sutton Park became a royal Sutton Park? Or how the, um, <laughs> no, kind of I'm the, looking forward the to the story. Goes? So apparently uh, King Henry VIII uh, came to Sutton Park and he shot a boar from distance with a bow and arrow and thus proclaimed it's right. a royal I mean, he yeah, he, I think he was not as good a sportsman as he thought he was, so it's probably a pretty serious achievement. Yeah, I, I mean, there's probably questionable whether it's actually true or not. <laughs> but, but it is mentioned in Shakespeare. It comes up in um, Henry the Fourth, Part One, I think. It is yeah. me- mentioned by name, so it is a historic place, that's for sure, and not just the birthplace of George Belshaw. Um, your dad was a lawyer; he's now a partner in a firm and specialises in mental health. So he's actually not a partner now. Right, he, he was. So he had a, a law firm that he kind of ran between places called Warsaw, Aldridge and Brown Hills. Oh, glamorous. Um, glamorous. All of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so he, his part of the law firm was mental health law. Mm. And your mum's a biology teacher or was a biology teacher, I yeah, should she say. she still is, yeah. Um, like just, just, and then you, you were obviously the first child, um, soon to be followed by a brother and then later a sister. Uh, just based on your parents' professions and like their specialties, it, it sounds like it was probably quite a supportive household to grow up in, quite a sympathetic one. Is that, is that fair? They were very musical and stuff, so they got me into quite a lot of music when I was younger. So I used to play trombone, viola, bit of piano to varying... That is... Ra- trombone and viola, difficulty. that's like... that. They are the roguest of each section. Well, exactly. I think like for anyone who um, has been in orchestras, they're quite often the... Uh, the, the banter section, I would say, which I think encapsulates me well. I mean, my, my, my transition from violin to viola was that I could read all kind of four clefts of music, but I wasn't exactly a devoted musical player in terms of practicing. And a teacher sort of approached me being like, we're really short on violas in the top orchestra. Would you, you know... You're way off on violin, but we can have you in on viola. <laughs> we, so, the, the bar is lower on viola. A lower viola bar. And then, so I played a couple of years in the kind of our school symphony orchestra on viola and then did um, two years in trombone. And I was uh, a fact that I often use when I'm uh, chatting people up, James, is I was a uh, Birmingham school's uh, first jazz trombonist for a little bit. Which yeah, yeah. George cool. is single. No one will be surprised <laughs> to learn. Um <laughs> Apart from music, was was sport a big part of of your childhood then as well? Yeah, but I wouldn't say through my parents particularly. Um, I think that came from the relationship with my brother 
more than anything we were quite competitive with each other we liked playing lots of different sports i remember my dad um quite early on tried to take us to a couple of sport games he wasn't like that interested but just kind of days out so we had on the saturday we went to warwickshire cricket um and the whole day was rained off (laughs) and we couldn't go back on the sunday because we'd got tickets for aston villa v chelsea and i think going to that um I'm pretty sure it was the game where Luke Nillis broke his leg. Wow. I don't remember that. Okay. Um, like kind of shattered his leg. He new signing oh, for Villa. yeah. And he was, he'd score, possibly scored in the game or in another one. I can't remember. You know, I was quite young. But um, yeah, from that, I kind of was really into football. And But my mum likes tennis. And she had kind of got me going down to kind of a local club that was called Sutton Hardcourts um, to play tennis then. Um, so what age do you think you were when you first picked up a tennis racket? Probably about six. Um, not like the pros when they pick it up at six and they're probably twatting it quite well. But <laughs> I did play at six. You just picked it up to whack your brother, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A nearby weapon. Yeah. Um, so you played tennis, obviously, from the age of six. You played football as well. I know you still sort of play football when yeah. your body allows. Um, were, were there other sports or was it just those two? Um, I mean, I, I, I fancy myself at most kind of racket sports. Not like to play regularly, but... I could might. have just stopped it myself. I could have, we know. Could have. <laughs> I play a bit of squash these days and I'm okay at badminton. Um, boxing, as you know, I've mm. done a little bit. I didn't really do that in my youth, but that's something I... Yeah, I was gutted to miss your... Uh, I mean, what you've had two I've fights, had two, right? Yeah, yeah. So at the first one, I think I was out of the country and the second one, it was the night after the general election in 2019 and right. I had been doing the overnight shift. I'd finished work at about 11am. I got home and our boiler broke. So I was like, A, I haven't slept, and B, it's freezing, because it was cold. It was, cold, yeah. it was, it was really like a cold. winter fight. Yeah, yeah. I'd been in bed with flu all week, mm. and, you know, when you've just been training for something for three months, you're like, oh, fuck, what an absolute disaster. And I remember the first round of that, because it was against uh, uh, Metro colleague Phil Haig, yeah. who um, has a podcast on snooker. Yes, with, with the great snooker. Nick Metcalf. Yeah, talking Indeed. snooker. If you like snooker, it's outstanding. That's the for you, yeah. Um, and, and the first round of that, I just remember walking to the, what do you call it, the corner. And I just could feel the particles of flu just on my chest, like oh. unable to breathe. Um, so I think, we're, yeah, we drew that, um, which I, I thought was a good result. Well, given my, you're my fighting a, also given you're fighting a mate, yeah. like that's the that's best a nice possible result. result. For everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Was, did Phil have his enormous beard at the time? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for people who know Phil Haig, he, he is shaved head on top but this enormous bit i mean it looks like like yeah it looks like it has things living in it quite frankly but um yeah so um bringing us back to tennis and away from boxing what are your earliest memories of watching tennis um so i mean i remember watching bits of wimbledon i think actually at my grand's house i seem to remember watching something there i don't actually have it sound a bit weird thing to say because i did go to my grand's house a lot but i don't have that many like distinct memories that i really think oh god yeah i remember doing this or this there like there's the odd board game we played or things like that that i remember but i do remember being there in wimbledon being on i think she liked tennis as well and yeah my mum loves wimbledon and things like that so definitely for for me as a younger kid it was just something i would watch or be on in the background in the summer so you know i remember a lot of kind of henman stuff i do remember kind of federer sampras and taking a bit of an interest there and then well, I think I was kind of playing alongside that. It started to become a bit more of a kind of tour level interest mm. when probably Juan Carlos Ferreira was world number one. I've heard of him. Yeah. I remember that was my, I was like, oh, 
I think we did like a tennis summer camp or something, and you'd probably be—I I can't remember what age I was—but you'd be able to work it out by whatever year yeah, he yeah. was well born because obviously it wasn't that long. Um, <laughs> but he just won the French Open or something, and we were doing a kind of summer tennis camp. And I remember being like, oh, "Right, who's well number one? That's you know who I'm interested in being yeah, or whatever." Yeah. And, Let's um, go. I, I think it's really interesting. Like people in the UK will will relate to a lot of that, and you know Wimbledon being on all the time and. But, and we bang on about Wimbledon a lot because it's our home slam. But people outside and people in the US may, maybe won't appreciate that like there are only five channels that are free to air in the UK. Or there are more now, but yeah, like back in the day. pretty much when we were growing up, there were only five channels free to air. And there wasn't a lot of live sport on them. There was a bit, but all the football was on satellite TV. I certainly didn't have Sky growing no. up. Um, and actually not many of my mates did. So... All the football I watched was match of the day at 8 o'clock in the Sunday morning on the rerun. And in the summer, for two weeks, there was sport on from like 11 a.m. till like, in the good old days before the roof, 7.30 unless it rained. And it was just this two weeks of like, okay, you were usually on holiday for a bit of it. But it was always on. My my mum was a massive tennis fan anyway, but almost anyone's house. You know, my sisters didn't really like tennis, but they did for those two weeks. And I think it's... Why it has that really strong, strong cultural memory for us, I suppose. Yeah. My, I was just gonna say my my other amusing, relatively early tennis memory that I think you'll enjoy is that I I remember going to the um, the hairdressers once and asking for Rob, Roger Federer's haircut, and we're talking <laughs> back when he had kind of ponytail, I, and my hair was quite short, so I was quite a way off. But I did definitely I remember going in and asking for that. Well, I mean, you, they can't just give you hair. No, I know. What did you expect he, to happen? I think they sort of taught me through the the stages i would have to go through and by the time i then went for my next haircut uh, that that had gone but I, I i did you know as a younger boy for a period i had to federer was the player i really liked watching uh after kind of i enjoyed the outing yourself friend. here george well i was going to say though while federer was my you know maybe first love in terms of tennis actually i did go through a phase of really liking Djokovic, mm. which will maybe appease some of our kind of crocodile lovers but uh. i think I kind yeah, of enjoyed. No these people, George. I enjoyed the spell Djokovic had in 2011 when he kind of conquered Roger mm. and Rafa, mm. if that makes sense. And I think that was. I thought that was quite a cool period because I knew how good Federer and Nadal were, and I was thinking, God, no one's ever going to get past these guys. And I remember Djokovic. It was Djokovic coming through probably coincides with when I had a bit more access to watching some of the tour, and mm. I remember seeing him like struggling with his shoulder and stuff, and being called as like you now quite weak weak guy almost in terms of yeah there were big of, physical question marks um, early on similar with murray actually when he was coming through you know, yeah there was kind of big questions about them too and federer and nadal felt a million miles away and uh, you know then novak just had that 2011 year and you think shit this guy's really cool um, <laughs> it does kind of illustrate how important that that passing the torch thing we always talk about is like it, it is a really important moment and you know it's why i'm desperate and we're all desperate for you know you to do some pluralization, your sinners, your runers, your rudes to, to beat these guys. Okay, they can't beat Federer and Nadal because they're gone now. Nadal will be back for a year, but not in any meaningful way, I think. But they've got to beat Djokovic because it does. It, it creates those moments that that really cement them on people's memories. And okay, maybe you were obviously someone who's very keen on tennis, but for those casual viewers, you need that that result where it's like. Oh, that Holger Rune guy, yeah, he beat Djokovic in the semi-finals yeah. of Wimbledon. And I think my my two likes of Federer and Djokovic as a kind of younger lad 
kind of manifested themselves in different ways. So when I was playing and learning, so I've got a one-handed backhand, which I'm nowhere near bloody Federer's, but you know, that, I think watching someone who is hitting that same shot at you, and you know, I think this has maybe changed a bit now in Britain, but it was quite common when I started playing for people to be taught one-handed backhands here. And I cut it to be it's one of the the older I got, the more I wish I bloody had a two-handed backhand. So actually watching Novak was probably like where I could see all my own weaknesses in the game being completely eradicated by this human brick wall who was incredibly flexible and durable versus someone who, you know, his backhand could be got at by good players and, you know, probably couldn't be as asked to run around and stuff. So so you were obviously watching these elite level players, thinking that'll be me in a few years. I mean, <laughs> I mean, were, were you you were you were a tall man now, and you were presumably pretty tall, taller than your peers, which is obviously cheating. Um, <laughs> were you a good player? Um, I, so I think I, I was okay. I'm not like great. So I had. So it all sounds a bit weird to be talking about all this, but yeah. So I had. So when I played, I probably played six to fourteen. Um, at kind of at Sutton Hardcourts there. Um, and then I had a bit of a break actually for four years, probably mm. three or four years. Um, largely motivated by actually not being able to get on the school team, which, right. to be honest, I think was more of a personality thing than a actual tennis ability. As but in, it, your personality stopped you playing, as in, you were petty or you didn't get on the team because you were a dickhead. That one, probably, <laughs> to be honest, and I, you know, I do have a, you know, at that period of my life, I think I definitely wasn't the most popular amongst the kind of faculty. Um, I mean, fifteen-year-old boys really are. Yeah, um, but then I would turn up every summer and play house tennis because I could still play, um, and I would, you know, give the school guys still a fair run for their money. And then they got a point where I was seventeen, I think, kind of second year before the end. I turned up and I'd had a bit of a growth spurt and I was still pumping down big serves and mm. stuff and they were like mm, I think you need to come and play on the, the team <laughs> so then I did play on the team and actually funnily enough my uh, partner at school he's um, I think it's his mum used to own Lyle Scott so we had Lyle Scott tennis gear nice probably, I've lost the bloody hoodie I can't believe it the t-shirt <laughs> I've kind of grown out of but that was yeah I mean, the West Midlands, turns out, was a bit of a hotbed of, of tennis talent, right? I mean, is it not right that you were due to play Dan Evans <laughs> at one point? So, yeah, so so picking up where we've left off there, so I've, I've kind of got back into it via school. So I've joined a new club um, via a different school friend who said, oh, I play here, you should come. So I went down there, and I think I've got a big serve. I could volley well, good anticipation and stuff. Doubles was actually my game much stronger by mm. them so i used to play things like kind of national club league um around birmingham and stuff which was always quite a funny experience because i would turn up because i hadn't played for so long and i just hated singles i hated like the mentality of it and stuff but national club league is you go and play a singles match and then doubles but i'd be the lowest ranked singles player even though i, was, I could probably take a few of the higher ranked ones and i'm thinking oh for the clubs are like this i'm gonna have a good good chance to there mm. and what instead kept happening was i'd turn up and there were people who've come from other countries who just don't have a British ranking. So I got hammered. I, so I you wish always I, get the ringer. So I wish I could tell you who it was, but I remember turning at one time, playing some bloke with an Aussie twang. He's probably like 45. I'm like 18. I look much physically fitter than this bloke. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to smash this guy. And he's, he's pounding me like one and one. <laughs> and I'm getting so angry. I'm like, you know, 
tossing my racket, swearing, like, what the bloody hell's going on? How's this guy beating me so comprehensively? He's got nothing. I'm just like, what the hell? And I get off the court, go to the toilet, have a bit of a cool off, sit down, and find out he was, like, all number 220 in doubles or something <laughs> at one point. And obviously, like, very good. It's and very in fact, he's making player. it look so normal. So probably him at... 0.1% of his actual effort <laughs> and kind of embarrassing me a bit. Um, a yeah. humbling moment. <clears throat> but yeah, so the Dan Dan story was I used to play kind of as a 17, 18-year-old kind of second team slash up to first team adults in Four Oaks who were quite often top-ranked team in Birmingham mm. in their league. So it's like quite a good standard, but not like, you know, there were much better players than me who I'd occasionally stand up for if we were short. And one of the occasions I was meant to go up and play first was away to Solihull, um, where Dan, when he was 330 of the world in singles, would occasionally turn up and play. Um, but I ruptured my shoulder in the club tournament um, in the same sort of week I was meant to be playing. And I played the tournament underarm serving. I think we got to the <laughs> semis with this other bloke who was called Nathan, who was even taller than me. And he, he reckoned he could serve at about 140 miles an hour, which... <clears throat> Nathan, it turns out, was on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was his surf was absolutely humongous. Like, probably the, the fastest one I've faced in real life. But we were a bit of a, like, just thumping huge right, surf okay. And there was to... you, like, knocking them <laughs> over. <laughs> yeah, so we, the semis was our limitation where we played a guy called um, Arnie, who was our coach at the club, who used to, he, he claims, I'm sure he did because he's excellent, but he used to, like, play at Boletari. Mm. And um, so he used to beat Hardy Fish quite comfortably. Right. But he didn't have the kind of money to go pro and he didn't want to rely on his dad and I think potentially fell out with him a bit. I so. see. But he took us out to Boletari a few years later. So that's how I met That's Nick how you ended up that. with your so Nick Boletari 6am coaching session. Exactly. So, I see. Yeah. This is the origins. Origins. This is the origins yeah, stories. It's all starting to make sense um, now. But yeah, so I, I, I pulled out of the match against Solly Hull and then Dan had rocked up and played <laughs> so we were due to play each other that week but unfortunately shoulda woulda coulda yeah well, ever, ever, story, I think. ever if you're listening this is an open invitation <laughs> george is just about fully fit i know he, he's obviously injured at the moment but you know maybe on his on his way back instead of a, a lucrative exhibition in abu dhabi or saudi arabia we can get you down to sutton coalfield and uh, have a hit on the artificial <laughs> it's, it's clay the match everyone wants to see I'm yeah sure. i think i think it all certainly is calvin can be chair umpire <laughs> I'll, I'll play him while he's got his torn hamstring or whatever it torn is calf. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um you obviously then moved away from from sutton coalfield and went to leeds and did philosophy at university um it, it, you ended up doing a master's in journalism did, did you first come to journalism at university what what gave you the passion for it um no, not at university. Um, probably the least inspiring route into journalism story. This is going to be James. <laughs> but, um, All you budding journalists out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it potentially shows you what's possible in a in a few weeks of fun, if you like. Um, yeah, I uh, got to the end of uni. I wasn't really... You'll be shocked to hear as someone who studied philosophy. wasn't really sure what to do next. Um, <laughs> yeah, there isn't a natural career path out of a <laughs> yeah. philosophy degree. Philosopher apparently isn't that lucrative. No, no. There would like, be a bit of Socrates going around with a wooden stick sort of thing, <laughs> shouting at people. Maybe. Be a bit Socrates. <laughs> Possibly like the least philosophy student thing anyone's ever said. Anyway, carry on. Um, but yeah, I went to Ibiza with some mates after uni. There was about 14 of us there and I decided... Just before that, I was going to do a little blog on the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. Mm -hmm. um, 
And one night when I'd, you know, someone like thirty people reading this for the first few articles. And I woke up one night and about two thousand people had plugged into one of our kind of prediction pieces, and sure. I was getting different mates to kind of write little bits in and whatever. Um, I think it was called Original Footy. And as, as one of our uni friends said, it was about the least original thing. <laughs> <laughs> so at least the footy was accurate. I right. Um, but yeah, so I, I kind of did that. And then I, I was enjoying it. And my mum said, well, you know, there is actually a, a career in that if you're interested. And she was probably thinking, this bum's going to be sitting around my house. <laughs> get him out there and something. Um, so she sent, um, sent me to... Um, or point me in the direction of something called Manchester Matters, which is linked to... Uh, Mancunian Matters. Mancunian Matters. Uh, which I didn't realise you had ever worked there. Yeah, so I went up and did a week, a week really? experience there. What, so what um, year? That was 2014? I think it would have been, yeah. So I started working at Mancunian Matters in September 2014. Yeah, so I would have been there a couple of months before. That's so amazing. That's so, so yeah, I did. Went up for a week and I remember doing kind of stories about... Um, someone it was like meningitis week and there was someone from a mother in bolton who'd almost lost her son to meningitis and things like that and did a it's kind of like a oh god like an audio tune video games music festival that was going on i went to interview the kind of creator of that and i was thinking this is a really interesting job to mm. like kind of meet all these different people and you know obviously sport was a big interest um but i actually really enjoyed that more normal yeah news journalism, journalism side yeah. Of things as well um so yeah at the end of that summer i was in that role i will try and do this and i thought okay is anywhere still accepting applications for a master's this year because i sort of didn't want to wait a year um, yeah so i lobbed an application into saint mary's university uh, Twickenham, which, Twickenham, yeah. which was you know relatively well regarded because it was linked to a, a big kind of sporting athlete body so mm. like mo farah trained there and stuff so actually you're kind of thinking as a journalist oh you'll be near to kind There's of some potentially there, good yeah. athletes and i think there was some boxer who was there when i was there i might have seen kicking around i don't exactly know what he was doing but i know that's not very useful but anyway. <laughs> um this is the detail that really gets the you. <laughs> um but yeah so i kind of it kind of went there and went to this interview that they invited me to and the bloke who was running the course was like why the hell was this application so late? The course starts next week. <laughs> is this Dara? It is Dara. <laughs> so, well, the the other coincidence here is that I actually have taught on this very course, <laughs> yeah. uh, and there are several people who I bumped into in pressrooms around the world who yeah. I taught on this very course. So, so he said, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if this is actually factually true, but it's quite a funny little tip. He said I was the. Uh, latest ever applicant to be accepted to the same I think which I think would be great it was like four days before my interview right before the actual course started so I'm not sure how true that is but, but that's a whirlwind I mean I was going to say you must have had to like try and find somewhere to live and that would have been very stressful but that is very much a stress that you, you seem to just be perpetuating I, in your life yeah kind of used to that never um, having anywhere to a, live there's a lad who came down from Scotland called Alistair McKenzie who's been working out in Italy for quite a while yeah yeah we, he freelances for the eye oh yeah. I didn't know you did the course with him yeah, yeah. we lived together um, oh so amazing he didn't have a um uh, this is ridiculous the number of like I mean it also know, shows yeah. you how like small the journalism it does, world yeah, is but Alice is a lovely guy. Yeah, and, and a really lovely well. reporter as well. And a yeah, great writer. he's a great writer, really good. Um, but yeah, so we we kind of lived together around there and um, mucked around. And yeah, I, the other reason I chose that course was because they allowed you to do a kind of dissertation and turn it into a master's. So mm. 
you can do like a six to 12 week journalism course, whatever it is, sure. your NCGA, um, which is very close to a government acronym I use in my current work, which <laughs> always throws me. Um, it's NCTJ and the one I use also is NCTR. Ah, so, I see. Okay, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like I've got a qualification in what I'm actually doing now. <laughs> Which you absolutely don't. don't. No. <laughs> You're a civil servant. You have no qualification. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, this one like allowed you to do a kind of dissertation and the dissertation could be going to make a documentary. So I went with my girlfriend at the time over the summer to Nicaragua to wow. make a documentary about Nicaraguan football. And that's like a really fond memory of that kind of period that I think was really lucky to go and do. Funnily enough, my upstairs neighbours from Nicaragua. Um, to tell me about Nicaragua as a place and, and what's the football scene like? Yeah, it was cool. I mean, so we had a... Funnily enough, the guy... So initially I wanted to go make a documentary about Honduras mm. um, because... <laughs> he got lost on the way. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, Honduras, I wanted to do it from a football perspective of they've qualified for the last few World Cups. Mm compared to a lot of other kind of Central American nations, what are they doing differently? Sure. I sort of said this to my um, course leaders, and they were like, I don't think we're allowed to sign off you going to Honduras. It's like currently the highest murder capital in the world feels like we can't let you go there. And the second one is like El Salvador, which borders <laughs> it. So I then sort of looked on the map. I was like, all right, well, how about Nicaragua then? And um, funnily enough, that year, a guy called Gunter... Um, was trying to apply to come over to St. Mary's to do the same course mm. and had a big passion for, for sport and stuff. So he, um, we, I got put in touch with him to be like a fixer to make this documentary. So I had someone oh, there amazing. in Managua to kind of make contact with people. I think it worked quite well for both of us because it allowed him to say, oh, I've got someone from England coming over to make a documentary. So I interviewed like the FA of the Nicaraguan, the sorry, president, president of the Nicaraguan FA. Wow. Um, I, I mean, I can share the video we can maybe put on YouTube if you want, because it's yeah. a 15-minute little thing that's quite fun. Great. Um, but, like, it's him holding up a picture of Step Blatter and Michelle Platini. And sort of <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, George, is anyone in this documentary not in prison? <laughs> um, but, yeah, we got to go and see the national team train and interview all of them. Got to kind of, yeah, really, uh, who's who of Nicaraguan football. They had, like, a couple of big young stars who... I don't think actually really made it that much in the end, but one played in the Europa League. Um, All right, okay. So, yeah, so it was about kind of how football was becoming more popular in Nicaragua compared to like baseball, which was like the national sport and stuff. Okay. And, um, yeah, I'll share it with you. It's, yeah, I mean, it's only fifteen minutes. So it's not that painful. No, we'll get it. We'll get it on the uh, on the tennis unfiltered YouTube channel. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you did come back from Nicaragua, fortunately, yeah. uh, and ended up working on the sports desk of Metro.co.uk, yeah. not the newspaper. As no, the fancy football league. together now. Well, yeah, they've kind of remerged again. But I remember when I freelanced at Metro, yeah. the fancy football league is called Metro.co.uk, not the newspaper <laughs> in brackets, right? Because I assume you spend your life on the phone being like, "Hi, it's George Belshaw from the Metro." Not the newspaper, yeah. the website. I'm, I mean, to be perfectly honest, like enough, enough people didn't let, know anyone from the Metro paper that I was kind of just like, oh, Fine. no one's ever going to know. No, <laughs> exactly. I mean, just... <laughs> and it opens a few more doors because it's quite <laughs> people know the paper because it's a for people who don't know the Metro, it's a free sheet that it, it does still exist, yeah. um, although in a much lesser form. But it, it was you know it was on every bus and tube in London. Like, yeah, like, growing up, I mean, like yeah. going seeing the metro and stuff was quite like, yeah it's a metro in the morning school, evening standard in the yeah. evening yeah um oh, i suppose the metro yeah it was all over the uk um talk to me about what's your first tennis tournament you covered professionally uh i think it was 2016 um 
ATP finals. I wow. think was my first one. Um, so before I'd kind of got into the pure tennis scene within that, I kind of did broader sport reporting, but also, um, and this probably leads back to some of my kind of Mancunian matters days, um, just they used to get me to do quite a lot of old videos. So I took on like the world's strongest man. I like did a boxing fight for them, um, which I think sort of crossed over actually with my first sort of tennessee thing. I did vegan bodybuilding. Oh, yes, I remember those topless pictures. Um, I fought a Dell through George's Instagram, you can find them. <laughs> I fought a British uh, sumo wrestler. Um, so I did lots of kind of random things. I ate, uh, the, the weirdest one, I reckon, actually, in some ways was. Uh, I sat on a Facebook Live for about 45 minutes and ate what was branded uh, the UK's hottest supermarket curry. And genuinely, like, 35,000 people were watching me sat in a room on my own eating this curry. We're like, oh my God. this is hot. I'm sort of <laughs> regretting booking as a curry for the signature. <laughs> um, was it that hot? It was quite hot, to be fair. And the, and, and the viewers were pretty, uh, like, insistent that I had to bite the chili lots and lots of times <laughs> like it was like a weird form of torture <laughs> it's sort of like a precursor to only fans really <laughs> only chili yeah, exactly. spicy I content i could have monetized at the time if i'd uh, had the wealth within so yeah so i start i guess what i didn't really when i was first in journalism i didn't because i'd not necessarily had such a passion for it from a young age in some ways i was kind of a bit more functional and thinking about kind of more business okay they want lots of people to read the stuff so i'll do things that i think will be read well and then i kind of got a bit bored of that after a while um and started thinking okay what, what would i be interested to cover it feels like football is a very saturated market which you know is probably my number one sport really like sure. kind of sporting villa i really like tennis so i used to play that a lot and we were talking at the time about like trying to cover other sports and make them more popular and i thought okay i think i can give tennis a good run and cover it quite differently to a lot of national papers and stuff where it's maybe not getting huge prominence i could do a lot of kind of lives on twitter and a bit more video stuff and um yeah you were in actually for, for, for people who do don't know the uk media landscape you're in like a real sweet spot because that this digital race to the bottom that had been going on hadn't really ever considered that there was traffic, frankly, in other sport. Yeah. You know, I was at the Daily Express at the time and they were just starting to work out, part, partly because of me, um, not to blow my trumpet. I, I take no responsibility for Express.co.uk being an absolute fire show. Um, but they were just working out that you you could actually do tennis digitally. And, yeah. and you know, the tennis beat, they, they have all, in their own way and in different ways, their papers have worked out what to do. But I guess you would just... Right, right place, right time. Basically. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and so the ATP Finals was like the first event in the UK after I'd started covering it for a bit, and I made sure I arranged, you know, some some interviews and stuff there, and was trying really hard to push it, and it actually generated quite a lot of traction. I think my Twitter following grew quite significantly in that one tournament mm. from complete, you know, three hundred people to kind of fifteen hundred or whatever, and I think they kind of back at base were thinking oh hang on if he can kind of grow like that at every event in he like does, a week yeah we yeah. can really grow this quite quickly um so that you know the tournament was i, I really enjoyed it uh, it was the year that murray became year end number one beating Djokovic in the final and stuff there were some good matches with ryanich um involved in a few as well um but i think it was kind of that the next sort of tournament where i was 
there's the Australian Open, which I didn't I didn't go to, but I kept, just to kind of give you a, a sense of what I was trying to do to kind of get there, I I actually went to the office from twelve a.m. till about um, seven a.m. every day to kind of cover cover that. Yeah, it wasn't nice. necessarily well, twelve p.m. probably actually. Um, that which is was grim. quite grim, but I wanted to prove this is how we do it. It'll be much better if I'm there, but like I know I need to show you yeah, yeah. those kind of long term yeah. this and stuff. Um, what was your? I mean, I, I've just got best tournament. What was what was your your the tournament you enjoyed covering the most for any reason? Yeah. Um... <laughs> There's a particular U.S. Open I seem to remember you talking about where you did. I think you did some work, but mostly was just on the piss for about <laughs> two weeks. Yeah, so I I broke it up with a a girlfriend just before that, and basically we we were kind of living together. Um. And I sort of handed in the keys to my flat in the morning. I took my flight to New York. Um, <laughs> and then spent two and a half weeks on the rebound. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that was a, a great... T- and that whole year, so that, that really was the main year I travelled on the tour. So I think I did like 20 tournament weeks that wow. year. Um, you know, some of which are where in the UK. It was all like Queens and Eastbourne and whatever. But, yeah, I got out to all four majors. I did Monte Carlo and Madrid. I went back out to Madrid for the Davis Cup finals. Like, that was a definitely like the hype of my journalism career it was really full on and i think actually you know i probably felt quite burnt out during a lot of it i think i was really mm. pushing myself very invested in my work and you know probably contributed quite a lot to that relationship breaking down at the time um but yeah it was it was great fun and you really get to know kind of different people on the tour and you know it's, i wouldn't go as cringy as saying it's like a family but you know you're very familiar in terms oh, of oh no it's like same. a family you hate each other the whole time <laughs> <laughs> the same people are there all the time you have a, yeah. a good laugh and there is a bit of a culture of you know some something th- i think some people don't really understand the hours you end up working or in the places like you know australia you had matches finishing at 4am and you think Fuck me, god i'm knackered i'm exhilarated because i've been covering this trying to hit a uk yeah kind of deadline of Ponta going out at 4am or Murray struggling on or whatever and and you're like god we need to just go for a beer and you try to negotiate so way we're the yarrow just have a quick pint to take the edge off before bed and then you back up at 11 o'clock to go the next day but you know everyone's in the same sort of boat and you you're knackered after two weeks but it gets a bit easier because there are fewer and fewer matches and um but yeah so I've gone a long way around answering this but yeah I enjoyed New York as the tournament from a kind of personal perspective like that was definitely my most free but i thought australia was run really well as a tournament i'd love to go back there and kind of get another chance to like visit when that's happening monte carlo i think it's just a brilliant club but i, I had a, a good relationship with madrid and because that's the one i did most in some ways i think i probably did that four or five times um because of the davis cup sure. as well was there um, I think I just got very used to playing there. There was like a media tournament every year, which so you got to play on the actual courts there, which you don't really get to do a lot of the other no, ones. No. Um, and yeah, I just I just think it's quite fun. It's a fun city that you've got the tapas late at night and stuff. It's a good one. That's to the kind key, of right? The, the thing that really distinguishes these tournaments is when you can finish late and still go and have a beer and actually get some proper food. Yeah. Like it's a nightmare in Australia sometimes when you finish at God knows what time. And you can go and have a beer. There's a few good late places, but actually trying to find any food, any decent food, it's, it's a real problem. Um, 
was your favourite interviewee in your your journalistic career? Do you think uh, tennis specifically? Um, so I mean, there's there's probably a couple that stand out in terms of. I was like, yeah, I did did those quite well. I found them really interesting to talk to. So the first one was probably Agassi. I think I had like the first interview with him after he'd broken up with Djokovic, um, which was obviously very well read. But actually, I think it was a, a good piece and brought out a lot of stuff with him. And I thought he's a he, if you've ever kind of have you interviewed him no before? i've actually never met him um he, he's one of like the most open people i've ever met in his like a book, sporting isn't culture. his book famously called open yeah. yeah but he he really is just someone you ask him a question you're hearing exactly what that bloke thinks and that's why that piece with novak i think what you know obviously within limitations you know he's not gonna come out and call him a, a twat or whatever but, <laughs> you know he, he just felt quite open and i enjoyed talking to him and you can tell he's like quite a different type of person who's probably done quite a lot of introspection to the point where he's actually like i don't really care what you think of me in some ways um and the other one is probably i really enjoyed doing the raffle one in lockdown it wasn't like a very long interview but i i just i thought you know it's a moment isn't it and knowing i was probably going to be walking away from it fairly soon that was quite a nice moment to interview like one of the big four on my own properly do a piece and i think get quite a good line about you know novak being obsessed sort of thing that i think that's quite a nice feeling when you know i suspect to a few people before i said yeah i've interviewed raffin it's a bit difficult feeling he's kind of padding it off and whatever um so i really enjoyed that one as well and you know he's one of the players again i grew up watching a lot and have a lot of admiration for and i mean i would say you know on your earlier question about who i kind of liked growing up I think once you work in these sports, you soon don't really have favourites. Like it, <laughs> no, you have people true. you kind of find quite personal to get on with. You have players you like watching, you know, who are interesting. But you can't once you see how the sausage is made, you're not really like, <laughs> God, these guys are brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> you know I mean? well, yeah. You just see it in a different, a different way, don't you? Um, you alluded to it there. You kind of knew you were getting ready to to walk away from journalism. What? I mean, everyone always have an exit strategy. Everyone in journalism has an exit strategy. What was the the straw that broke the camel's back for you? What what sort of? Um, I mean, there were a few things. I, to be honest, I'd sort of earmarked early thirties as the time I might go. Anyway, because mm. I was to be honest, I think the way I was covering it and throwing myself into it, I thought I'd struggle to keep Stay. that up forever. Um, but I wanted. To, I'm, you know, I'm really grateful for a lot of the experiences I have, but I do kind of feel I did it at a, the right sort of time in my life as, you know, relatively young and exuberant and fun. Um, <clears throat> but the lockdown kind of just sped things up a bit. And I think really there was a bit of a dynamic in journalism as a whole, not just brought on by the lockdown, but exacerbated by it about a lot of cutting of funding, a lot of why do we need you here why can't you do this from home and i, I kind of got to the point where i was thinking oh, I, i'm better than this <laughs> really <laughs> i i did just think that and i was also thinking you know do i want to go to another paper and not be the main guy to mm. be honest on tennis do i want to go and be number know, two to who you know, one of the other guys and if one of them left their role a would i actually have a shot at it probably not 
I, th- I think you're doing stuff down there, but yeah, th- yeah. but look, none of them has in, yeah. the, in the three years since. And yeah, know, people don't leave jobs easily in tennis. Exactly. And, you know, B is kind of waiting for your mates to die or retire, isn't it, really? <laughs> um, in a kind of bleak way. So it, it felt like a bit of a, for me, like quite a difficult numbers game. And then I was thinking, you know, I don't really want to stay where I am. I'm not sure I'm that motivated about going somewhere else to be a you know not having the access i did because i you know by the end i had you know pretty good contact book i was pretty well known i could get a lot of interviews and access to different things but i didn't feel like the organization i was in was kind of treating me like that in some ways um and i think you know probably the the ice on the cake i've already agreed to leave at this point but was you know in a different well, this wasn't a sport person saying this, but someone had actually questioned why, what value do I'd get from going to Wimbledon? I was like, I do realise that's not costing you anything. I live here and like, I will work a lot longer at Wimbledon. And then, you know, it's the, it's the sort of culture, the same people then are the first to be rushing around being like, oh, thank God we've got him there when he's got a big story that's being read, you know, half a million times and the times are picking it up um, on page three that they'd never bloody got if I'm, wasn't there do you know what i mean is is that same old thing and you know that's the same in any kind of industry in place but at that point i was really like well i'm not being paid enough for this shit so (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a numbers game with belshaw invariably i find (laughs) i've got some quick fire questions and i've got one slow fire question okay um so if you were a tennis player what song would you walk out to um oh god so I think from the ATP finals in 2016, they had a song called Unstoppable by Sia that they played all the time. And I always associate that. I think that would possibly be on my Desert Island Discs, A, because I like working out to it, but B, it makes me feel back quite fondly to that event. And I think it's a pretty hype song. So I'll probably go for that. Um, Dream doubles partner, I can guess, but... I think I would love... I'd love to go and play a doubles match with Kyrgios. I I think it'd be good fun. I think he's probably up for it. Yeah, you know, I think... I was a good volleyer. I'd love to play against a good server. He's one of the best I've ever seen live. I think it'd be kind of funny. Um, I think we'd, you know, I also like a few little trick shots. I'm nowhere near as good as he is, but that, you know, I think it'd be it'd be quite an entertaining little exhibition match. So I'd, I'd probably pick Nick. Yeah. Um, favorite tennis tournament? No, no, no uh, reasons required. I, I, I'll go Monte Carlo. Last meal. Yeah, I was thinking about this. I think my favourite current restaurant's a place called Land in Birmingham, which is like a huge vegan tasting menu thing. Mm. Um, and I love, I, I quite like tasting menus because you get the wine fly and different kind of aspects and makes it quite interesting. So I'd probably just have something like that. You've <laughs> you got of a tasting bits. menu for your last meal. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Death row, mate. Um, I tell you, uh, speaking of nice vegan dishes, uh, I went to a mediterranean place in dulwich recently uh, and they did this amazing miso aubergine thing i couldn't tell you what else was on it but absolutely amazing like miso is really cool when you yeah. do good things with it um and one drink for the rest of your life uh whew. i mean but there's always the temptation to be like oh i love a beer but actually i think squash is the thing i drink most <laughs> probably go for that uh that maybe is... like a uh, summer fruit squash so that is extremely boring well done just very finally i've got something a, a little bit deeper to ask Ooh. you i know settle in this is the bit on uh on high performance where Everyone they try and make them cry yeah. yeah um if you could change one thing about the way your life has been to now 
what would it be? Or if you've got one regret. Oh, just one. Crikey. That's uh, <laughs> hard to boil it down. Um, I, I, I do sometimes wishes. I wish I worked a bit harder on my self as a young person rather than throwing myself into other things in some ways. I think I think about things a lot more. It's probably hard to believe, but <laughs> I think a bit more carefully about kind of impact rather than just doing what I want to do and kind of thinking about broader life and what's Do you happening. mean impact like on, on other people around you or? No, that, but also like other parts of society and what kind of happens and how that affects other people and that not just looking through my own lens. I think, you know, that's something that comes with age and maturity, but I think I really was a bit more selfish than I am now. I still got <laughs> me selfish in my own way, we all are, but I think I've definitely... I would have liked to have been that person 10 or 12 years ago. I think I would have enjoyed certain parts of life a bit more. I think I think that's a pretty human thing to think. I think we all look at ourselves and go, I am the best version of myself I've ever been. I, <laughs> I wish I'd got here earlier and then I could be even yeah, better 10 by years now. time I'll be thinking, what a twat said. <laughs> I wish yeah. I'd been less selfish. Yeah. Then you'll be able to watch it all back on the yeah. Tennis Unfiltered, exactly. highly successful YouTube channel. George, thank you very much for... Um, giving us so much of your life and I hope you at home have enjoyed it as well uh, it's been really interesting I, I will be giving Calvin the same grilling and I might even get one of you to do something similar for me um, thank you very much for listening or watching indeed if you've been on YouTube thanks to producer Dom who is a, a, a blast from the past in my own personal <laughs> way as a, a former Love Sport Radio survivee and thank you to you of course for listening and make sure you come back next week Podcast Network.